It's been said that life is a process of getting used to things we don't expect. Boy, that's true. Have you ever planned a tragedy? Ever plan a trial? They're unexpected. They come out of nowhere. And that's when life hurts. Those unexpected, painful experiences. It is not the normal, everyday pressures that break us. It's those painful, unexpected surprises. And when they come, what's our question? Why me, God? I thought this happens to everybody else. I thought I can just turn on the television and see what happens to other people. But it's happening to me. Why me? Now, how we handle those trials and surprises is very critical. It's been said that adversity will make us either bitter or better. Have you noticed how true that is? You've seen some people who've really gone through the mill and they become very bitter, angry people at life. Then other people who've had just as rough a time It seems that their character is developed. They become sweeter. Their roots go down deeper. They become better. An illustration would be if you were to walk on a shoreline by an ocean and notice that places where the waves beat upon the rocks, those rocks are generally smooth. If you go into a nice little quiet cove where there's no activity, those rocks are sharp and jagged. It's the beating of the water upon the rocks that creates that smooth, beautiful appearance. Well, Job is beaten. He's beaten by the storms of life. And he cries out in verse 1, it says, Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. When a person suffers... The words that come out of his mouth are from deep within. Because when you suffer, you don't have time for superficial talk. Remember the last time you were sick? Or hit your thumb with a hammer? Or bumped your elbow? The words that come from your mouth, good or bad at those times, they come from deep inside. It's like when Peter was drowning, when Jesus said, Okay, Peter, get up on the water, start walking. When he started sinking... He didn't have superficial talk. He didn't say, Lord, I don't understand why the pressure of my foot is not correctly displacing the water. He said, Lord, save me. Three words. (laughs) Job is crying out. The first question when we suffer is, Lord, why me? The second question is often what Job says in verse 3. He says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Look at verse 8. Look, I go forward, but he's not there, and backward, but I can't perceive him. When he works on the left, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. Now, this is Job's problem, and this is our problem. The problem that we have in a relationship with God is precisely what Job articulated. Where is God? I can't see him. 
He said, oh, I wish I knew where I could find him. And then in verses 8 and 9, he says, I can't see him, I can't behold him, I can't perceive him. That's our trouble. Where is he? Man has always had trouble with an invisible God. He's not tangible. You can't grab him by the hand and pull him in and look at him eye to eye like you can a person. And that poses problems, doesn't it? Jeremiah said, you are a God who hides himself. Man has always had that problem. Where is God? I want to find him. Oh, that I might know where God was. There is an unfed hunger that lies beneath the surface of all our Christian activities. Tim Stafford, in his latest book, wrote this. I did not lack for intellectual satisfaction or the demonstration of God's power. I saw him changing lives. My questions and doubts were only a footnote, a silent interjection into an exhilarating story. On a man-to-man level, Christianity was wonderful. It was the man-to-God level I felt shaky about. I wanted more. I've come to realize since then that I was not alone in my longing. It's just that such questions aren't aren't usually voiced. When they are, when the conversation moves to the subject of knowing God, listeners grow suddenly quiet and attentive. For a long time, I thought this was a disapproving silence. I now know it was a silence that falls on a room of hungry people when someone talks about food. No matter how sophisticated you are or how spiritually informed you are, you and I have a desire to see God. This indivisibility of God. The fact that we can't see Him, it's a problem. Oh, that I might knew where I'd find Him. You know, it starts when we're kids. Our kids say, What's God like? How big is God? Where does he live? What does he look like? But those questions just turn into different questions when a person grows up. The questions that grown-ups have are, how do I know God is real? How do I know this isn't just a figment of my imagination, an emotional exercise based on what certain people have told me? How do I know he's really real? I can't see him. Perhaps the larger question isn't just where is God, but where is God when I'm in pain? Because when we're in pain, that's when that question really gnaws at us, right? Where is God when I suffer? Have you ever asked that question? Sure you have. David asked that question. This is what he said. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. There was a movie years ago based on a book by H.G. Wells. It was called The Invisible Man. Remember that movie? And The Invisible Man was a film and a story about a man who through science discovered a way to drink something and make himself invisible. He thought, well, that's great. Now, all of us have dreamed about Being invisible when we were kids. Oh, that'd be great. I could sneak into places. Nobody would ever see me. I could overhear conversations about me. No one would know that I was there. But that dream turned into a nightmare for that scientist. 
because when he wanted to fulfill his needs, he had to touch the physical world, that which is visible, and he got discovered. In other words, when he took money, the money didn't become invisible. You saw the evidence floating down the street. Or if he took food, the hamburger was floating down the street. It created problems. Even if he took money, he couldn't spend it. But his friends also had trouble with the invisible man. Because there's something intimidating about knowing somebody you can't see. You can't see him, but he can see you. Is he in the room or where is he? He can overhear your conversations, but you can't see him. It's much easier to be friends with somebody visible than someone who's invisible. And man has always cried out to see God and has had trouble with the fact that God is invisible. That's the reason idolatry was such a big problem in the Old Testament. Man got tired of this idea of not seeing God. He wanted something visible. So a gold calf. These are the gods, O children of Israel, which brought you out of Egypt. It's visible. It's tangible. That, by the way, is why people are often given over to statues and pictures of God or Jesus. It's something visible. It has dimension. It's not just a concept. Man has trouble with the idea that he can't see God, but especially when he suffers. There was, in 1984, a Gallup poll. And they took the average Joe American on the street. They took 1,500 Americans, different backgrounds, different ages, different occupations. And they asked him this question. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? If you could see God and ask him one question, what would that question be? Now, that Gallup report came out with ten questions, the ten most asked questions by people in America. You know what the first one on the list was? Why is there suffering in the world? That's the first question. Second question, will there ever be a cure to all the diseases in the world? Third question, why is there evil existing in a world if there's a good God? Number four, will there ever be lasting world peace? Those are the questions that occupy people's minds. Where is God when I suffer? I can't find him. Because that has always been a problem, People have doubted the existence of God, or they have limited God. I mean, if there's evil, and if God is good, then God must not be very powerful. There came out a book, I don't know if you're familiar with it, a few years ago, by a rabbi, Rabbi Harold Kushner. It's called, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It was a bestseller. He was a rabbi, but in his book he declared that God wanted the very best, but he was just unable to give it to people. This is what he said in his book. He said, God would like people to get what they deserve in life, but he can't always arrange it. And in the book, he encourages us to forgive God because he's not perfect. In other words, he'd love to be able to control the world, but he can't. He's just not powerful enough. Forgive him. He's not perfect. And he said... Some things God does not control. In the book, Rabbi Kushner depicted God as a concerned spectator, but unable to get involved personally. Job is in pain. He's experiencing the fact that God is not answering him, something we've all experienced. God, where are you? I look to the east. I look to the west. I go to this side, to that side. I can't find you. 
But look at verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Now that's a contrast to the words before. Oh, that I might find him. Where is he? I can't see him. Ah, but he knows my way. And when I'm tested, I'm going to come forth as gold. Those are words of faith, folks. He's saying, I don't know what God's up to. I don't know where God is, but I know God knows all about me. And I'm going to rest in his control. Job does not have a view of a limited God, but of a sovereign God. He knows all about me. He knows my suffering. And he's got me in a testing process. And when it's all over with, I am going to come forth as gold. By the way, folks, this will revolutionize our lives if we can only pick up on this truth. God did not take a vacation. God is aware of your pain. Why or what right do we have to think that God should only hand us pleasure in life? The good things, the good life, fun. This will revolutionize your periods of pain. God knows all about it. And when I'm tried, I'm going to come forth as gold. See that little word in their test? Verse 10. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. You know what that word means? It means to examine something, to determine the quality of something. You pick something up, you examine it, and you find out what it's made out of. What quality is this thing that I'm examining? In Job chapter 1, God said, Satan, see my servant Job? Perfect man, mature. He hates evil. He loves good. What was Job's reply? He said, does Job love God for nothing? You've blessed him so much, Job would have to be an idiot not to love you. In other words, God, Job serves you because you serve Job. He accused Job of being mercenary. That the only motivation that men love God is because of the blessings, the material prosperity and blessings that they get out of God. And so Job was stripped emotionally, physically, He lost his kids. He lost everything until life was boiled down to just Job having God. He had nothing else but God. Everything was taken away to test him, to see what he was made out of. And Job in another place said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Job was tested and he recognizes there's purpose in my pain. Now, this is the great dividing line between a believer and an unbeliever. An unbeliever can't say this. An unbeliever sees no purpose in pain or life in general. He's just evolutionarily placed upon this earth, and he has to make the best of it and climb the social ladder and make the best out of his life, and it's just happenstance. He sees no real purpose or divine direction. A child of God does. He sees that there's purpose. He sees that even though I'm going through the pits, God has a reason for it. And when I am tested, I will come forth as gold. Job saw God as a master craftsman striking heavy blows upon Job's life. But each blow was fastening him, shaping him into something more beautiful. You know, in the old days, the goldsmiths would take gold and they'd burn it. They'd liquefy it. They'd put it in a heater till it bubbled. And the impurities would rise to the top. 
And when the impurities would rise to the top, they'd take a skimmer and they'd skim off all the garbage. And they'd let it boil again. And the impurities would rise to the top and they'd skim off the garbage. They'd let it harden. They'd do it again. They'd put it in the furnace. And so they put it in the furnace. It would melt, take off the impurities. They'd let it harden. And they'd do it all over again. When do you think a goldsmith knew when to quit? He knew when to quit when the gold was in a liquid state and it was in the fire. After the impurities would rise, he'd skim off those impurities. He'd look in the vat. And if he could see his reflection in the vat, without all the little dots of impurity, he knew the gold was done. That's exactly what God does to us. Puts us in the furnace. When are we done? When the image of Jesus Christ is so beautifully reflected in our lives that we don't need it anymore. Now, isn't that exactly what Peter said? In the first chapter of 2 Peter, listen to this. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may prove genuine. A word of comfort. If you're in the furnace, God has his eye on the temperature gauge. He's not going to forget it. He's not going to walk away and let you burn. Job didn't say, when I'm tried, I'll come forth as crispy critters or burnt toast. But gold. God has his eye on the temperature gauge. He knows how high it's going. But I'm going through the fire right now. That means he wants his image reflected in your life. And when he can look at you and see the character of Jesus Christ so completely fashioned and formed within our lives, no more trials the rest of our lives. I got news for you. It's not going to happen quite that easy. But that's why we must give ourselves over to that master craftsman and say, when he has tried, I'll come forth as gold, not run from it. Look in the next verse. He says, My foot is held fast to his steps. I have kept his way. I have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Now, this is Job's answer to what he'll do in the meantime. Follow it with me. He says, I can't find God. I'm suffering. I don't know where he is. I don't see the purpose all in this suffering right now, but I know this, that God has his eye on me, and he's testing me, and he's got the temperature knob up, but when it's all over, I'm going to come forth as gold. He's, there's a purpose in my trial. In the meantime, since I can't see God yet, and since I don't know the complete end result, because I'm still in the middle of my suffering, what will I do in the meantime? Now read it again. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Now, do you remember that conversation back in Job chapter 1 that God had with Satan? Again, he said, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's upright. He hates evil. He loves me. God bragged about him. 
God said, here's a man, Satan. No matter what happens to him, he's going to come forth as gold. I have confidence in him because he has confidence in me. Then the trials came. Satan turned up the juice, flattened him. He was stripped under the control of God. Now Job is saying, I've held fast to his steps. I have not gone to the right hand, to the left. I have not departed from his commandments. I'm trusting in his word. In other words, he's saying, I have stuck it out. I didn't wimp out on the Lord. I've been dogging his footsteps everywhere. I haven't turned to the left hand or to the right. I haven't slackened my pace on this road. I followed God when the sun's been shining and when it's been raining. If there's mud holes in the road, I'll still follow him. When the road's nice and the sun is out and everything's green, I'll follow him then. But I am not a fair weather follower. I've stuck it out. I've followed in his footsteps. I haven't gone off the path. You know what that spells? Perseverance. Perseverance. I found it interesting in the New Testament, there's only one mention of Job. Only one time Job is mentioned, and I think it's noteworthy that we find out where. Turn to the book of James, chapter 5. In verse 7, he says, Therefore be patient, or endure, or have perseverance, until the coming of the Lord... See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Verse 11, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. That's the only time Job is mentioned. And what characteristic is mentioned alongside of him? Perseverance. You've heard of the perseverance of Job. You know what that word perseverance means? It's a Greek word, hupomone. It means literally to Endure under stress. It means endurance under stress. It means that even though you want to give up, you don't. Even though everything around you says quit, you don't. Like Job's wife who said, curse God and die. He says, no, I'm going to endure. I'm going to stick it out. Perseverance is determination when your emotion stops. It is determination when your emotion stops. When you don't feel like following God anymore. It's been a tough year. What has God done for me? I've been reading the Word. I've been going to church. I've been witnessing. But I still have this thing, this suffering. But I'm not going to quit. Even though my emotions say quit, I'm not going to do it. And you know what? That separates an immature Christian from a mature Christian. They tough it out. It's not easy, but they tough it out. 
I'll show you what I mean by that. Turn back in James a couple chapters to chapter 1. James 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. You think, oh, give me a break. You mean count it all joy. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Better word would be perseverance or endurance. But let patience or perseverance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. I'm going to read that to you in a whole different version called the J.B. Phillips translation. Now listen closely. When all kinds of trials crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders. Welcome them as friends. Realize that they have come to test your endurance. But let the process go on until that endurance is fully developed. And you will find that you have become men and women of mature character. You've become men and women of mature character. Several years ago, right before I moved to New Mexico, one Christmas I was hiking through Death Valley, California. Death Valley is a tough place to go camping. It's barren. It was hot even at the wintertime. It's the lowest place in the United States. Now, I'm backpacking with a guy who was an expert backpacker. He was an outdoorsman. And we were hiking up a steep grade. And it wasn't the kind where you have a little hill and then it's flat and downhill. It was a long, slow grade that never ended. And we hiked up. First hour, I was okay. Second and third hour, I was waning and I wanted to quit. And I remember Jerry saying, Keep going, man. Keep going. And I looked at him and I resented him for it. I felt like saying, give me a rope and tow me up then. I wanted to quit. But he said, keep going, keep going. The more I kept going, even though my muscles were aching and my legs were going, oh, and those little sinews were stretching out. The more I decided to hang in there, the easier it got. It's called a second wind. I felt like, oh, I can make it. And I made it. I made it with his encouragement and determination. Now, I wanted to wimp out. He wanted to keep going. I wanted to quit. I figured, look, up there isn't any better probably than right here. Let's camp right here. But I kept going. There are a lot of cream puffs in the kingdom of God who want to throw in the towel, myself included. Many times. We want to stand in line when God doles out the peace, love, joy, blessings. But when it comes to a test, <laughs> excuse me, God, I have other things to do. And we want to go. Perseverance, true grit, is what is needed. Jesus spoke about bearing fruit. Remember the story? He said seed fell on this soil, seed fell on that soil, all these different kinds of soil. The seed that fell on good soil in Luke's gospel, he said, bore forth fruit with endurance, with perseverance. It hung in there. It didn't give up. You know how you get patience? You know how you get perseverance? Think about it. How do you get perseverance? Trials. 
Don't you wish you could get it just from reading a book or taking a class, a Bible class? How to get patience, how to get endurance. Just take a class, pass the test, you've made it. But you don't get it that way. You don't get it through reading or studying. You get it through going through the stuff. It's like the story of the old minister and the young minister. The young minister was very impatient. And he couldn't hang in there and stick it out. And he came to the old guy and he said, I mean, you've got to pray for me. I don't know what wrong. I don't have endurance. I don't have any patience with people. Would you pray for me? The old minister said, sure, no problem. Lord, I pray right now in Jesus' name, send this man trials. Send him afflictions. And the young guy said, quit! I want patience, perseverance. I don't want trials. And the old minister looked at him right in the eyes and he said, that's why I'm praying that. The Bible says tribulation works patience. That's how you get it. And Job hung in there. He said, I've been sticking it out. Now back to Job. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. He said that when he had boils covering his body. He was suffering. He was in agony. And I've esteemed or I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. The word of God was his bed. That's where he rested. When the roof caved in and the building fell down, the thing he rested on was the promises of God. Because when a person is suffering, explanations don't help. Promises do. And he's, he camped on the word of God. I've treasured up the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Boy, that's quite a statement, isn't it? What do you lean on when the bottom falls out and the roof caves in? I have had, I get the opportunity all the time to watch people through tough times, Christians and non-Christians, and I watch what they lean on. And some people lean on uh, chemical dependence and alcohol. Some people lean on uh, supernatural experiences of uh, weird experiences. Some people turn to just human beings. And all of them have crutches. Somebody leans on something when they're going through the mill. All of those crutches, though, break eventually. And Job said, I'm going through it, and in the meantime, I'm going to pursue him, I'm going to stick it out, and I'm going to trust in his word. I've treasured up the words of his mouth even more than my breakfast, my lunch, my dinner, my necessary food. That, folks, will determine the result of the trial. I once read a plaque, or read of a plaque, and on the plaque it said, it was supposed to be funny. It says, I am planning to have a nervous breakdown. He said, I've earned it. I've deserved it. I've worked hard for it. And there's nothing you can do to stop me from having one. There's nothing to lean on. Job was suffering with boils all over him. And he said, I've treasured up the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Necessary food, not desserts. In other words, the priority of my life is the word of God and the promises of God. I've treasured them. I've held on to them. You know what the principle in that verse is? Hunger springs from recognition of need. I'll say it again. Hunger springs from recognition of need. Have you ever wondered 
why one person can come in contact with the Scripture and it can change him dramatically and another person can come in contact with it. There's no change. He's cold to it. He's indifferent to it. You know why? One recognizes the need. The other doesn't. There's no hunger. There's no anticipation. There's no real drive. But when a person senses his need, there is a change. May I encourage you to buy a Bible? Boy, doesn't that sound simplistic? Most of you have them, but a lot of you don't. A lot of you come and you don't even have a Bible. Buy a Bible. Read the Bible. Stand on the Bible. Don't just keep it on the coffee table and press flowers in it. Read it. Some of the best thing that can happen to us is that we get spiritual indigestion. Burp up some scriptures during the week. We fill ourselves with it. Someone once said, when a man's Bible is coming apart, it's an indication that he himself is not. He reads it so much, that thing's getting tattered and torn, it shows that he's living the Word of God. Now, some of you folks are being tested. Pain has invaded your life. Why me, God? I want to quit. I want to run. Right? You know, the same thing happens to an oyster. For some reason, a piece of irritant, a piece of sand, penetrates the skin of an oyster in between the shells. And that irritation gets inside and it causes pain. And immediately, the oyster sends out secretions to cover that irritation. You know what it's called, a pearl. In other words, a gem is born out of irritation. There are other oysters that doesn't happen to. There's no pain, there's no problem, and there's no pearl. And those oysters are useless, or they're good just for a restaurant. You can eat them and throw away the shell. But the most costly oysters are those that have the pearl inside. And a pearl is born out of irritation. And Job knew that. That's why he said, I'm going to come forth as gold. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are in charge of refining our lives. And we're wincing. A lot of us don't like that. We would rather get out of it. We'd rather you just hand us a big bag of fun. But Lord, you love us so much more than that. You don't desire that we have shallow lives, but that our roots go down deep. So, Lord, first of all, we affirm your control. You're in charge. And you, Lord, we give you the permission even to hand out those unexpected surprises. Knowing that you're aware of our condition. Knowing that you're refining us. Lord, in the meantime, we are committed to you. We sing all the time, I've decided to follow Jesus. Lord, we are following you. Whether the road is smooth or rocky, whether it's sunny or it's raining. And Lord, we hold on to your precious promises until this trial is over, until this life is over, and we see you face to face. We can't see you, Lord, but we can certainly see the evidences of your work. Lord, I pray, as James wrote, that we won't see that trial as an enemy 
but as a friend that we might become mature. So Lord, send them our way. We trust, Lord, that you have your eye upon the thermometer. Get out the impurities, Lord. 